A very warm welcome and congratulations to the 2023 World Retail Congress Hall of Famer inductee Mindy Grossman. Mindy, thank you very much indeed for joining me and congratulations. Thank you. It's such an honor and it's also an honor to be spending this time with you. Well, your illustrious career, which is still in full force, covers many different facets of business and of brand building and of retailing and many more in between. But uh, let's start literally at the beginning. I know that my earliest retail memories are when I used to visit my grandmother and she used to give me one penny, which in those days to me was an absolute fortune. And I'd go across the road to the nearest sweet shop and I can still smell those wonderful sweets, which are probably really bad for me. But anyway, and, and I spent all my money on that. And that was that was retail for me. What were your first retail experiences? Oh, goodness. Well, my, my version of what you had was my grandmother taking out her purse and giving me the money to go buy my ice cream cone from the mini truck that went down the street. So, you know, retail takes all forms, right? And when I moved to New York in 1977 um, and entered into the menswear industry, uh, I worked for Manhattan Industries and I worked for Jeffrey Banks, Ron Chereskin, um, then Willie Smith in the 80s, um, then Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph. My experiences were very much on the brand side, integrating into retail certainly putting shops in retail environments, but really saw the panoply of different ways to reach the consumer. Everything from, you know, Tommy disrupting the menswear industry with what he did, the first designer to do massive billboards, you know, out there announcing him to Willie Smith doing incredible collaborations with artists like Barbara Kruger and Keith Herring and, you know, instead of a fashion show doing, you know, a movie with Max Vatical on the Senegalese National Ballet. So I was very fortunate to have such different experiences of how to galvanize the consumer, differentiate your product um, in so many ways. And then, you know, I started Polo Jeans Company for Ralph Lauren you know, and saw a new way to bring the brand forth and forward, installed so many incredible environments within stores, actually did a polo jeans vending machine, you know, in in Macy's. So really looked at different ways. Um, And then spending six years at Nike, being able to grow their global apparel business and really seeing retail around the globe in so many different markets. Well, let's talk about Nike for a minute, because you sort of took a shoe manufacturer and you sort of made them understand the world of clothing uh, and, I suppose, fashion and athletic wear. What was that experience like, going into you know a company that was so iconic like that, but was pretty one-dimensional in terms of its outlook about what it was going to sell? I'll tell you, David, it was an amazing experience to the point that I've been gone for 17 years. I've never worn another pair of athletic footwear or apparel. And I, I really credit that to Phil because Phil had come back into Nike in the very late 90s, you know, 2000, when the company was going through a difficult time. It was everything from labor practices to 
an alienating campaign around the Atlanta Olympics and a number of other things. So he came in to build a new leadership team and really accelerate the growth of the brand and the business. And to your point, I was the first person brought in to run the apparel business who came out of the apparel business. And, you know, my dictate was to make Nike an apparel company, not just a footwear company that made apparel and change the processes in the organization from supply chain to optimization to merchandising to how they built product. And it was uh, an incredible experience. And, you know, it Nike's a matrixed organization. So it was very important that for me to be able to accomplish what I needed to accomplish, I really had to galvanize the rest of the organization around the vision of what this can be and build the right team and create all of the strategy to the operations, to the design and innovation. And it was incredibly exciting what we were able to do globally to centralize resources to make sure that as a brand, we were understanding the differences of markets, but really be able to be core and true to what the brand was. How were we going to identify athletes that could really break through in apparel? So when we signed Serena Williams, for example, you know, one of the first things we did, I remember it was the U.S. Open, and she came out with a denim miniskirt, a black leather jacket, you know, these incredible shoes with boots attached, all performance. But we had more PR probably in two days in the history of apparel. <laughs> so I, I always believe that if you're trying to break through, you need to be provocative without being polarizing and really establish who you are. And it was an incredible experience, especially to really define Nike as a women's um, company in apparel, which you know is not just take menswear and make it pink and smaller is really to define what style is in athletic apparel, which is what we did. But to the extent to which you had to redefine, in, in a sense, the, the culture of the organization, was that a difficult thing to do in, a, in an organization that was so tightly defined at the time? Yeah, I was very fortunate to have the support of Phil and to come in at a time where the company was relaunching its new mission and vision, you know, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete, asterisk, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So to really embrace diversity, uh, I had the opportunity to start Nike's first Women's Leadership Council, really look at even our hiring practices. How were we going to bring teams together to feel more inclusive? And I think within any organization today, culturally, not just culturally, but for the benefit of the ability to be successful in business, you have to drive diversity, you have to focus on innovation, you have to have different voices around the room to be able to create that. And I believe that that moment in time was very critical for what obviously became the dynamic growth of the organization. Now, you then moved to an area of 
I suppose, uh, retailing, merchandising, program making, way before many people have understood how significant it was going to be. What was the pull that pulled you in, in that direction? David, you know, I had been at Nike for six years. And as I said, it was an incredible experience. But I was doing this crazy commute between New York and Portland, Oregon, and out of the country 30% of the time. My daughter was going to her later years of high school, other family things. And, you know, I realized that I had to make a shift. I felt I wanted to take over as CEO of a company. But again, after you've had that incredible experience for six years with a Nike, where do you go? And I truly believe that in order to make a decision of what you do want to do, you have to decide what you don't want to do, but you also have to create what I call a purpose filter for where you are in your life. What are the questions you're asking yourself about what is going to make sense for this next point in your journey? And so I made a list. I said, a, 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 phys- a, a physical CEO. list or a virtual list? Do you really? Physical list. It's, it's, a, it's a purpose filter right? I had the benefit of traveling around the world, seeing the dynamic growth of mobility and how people were interfacing with content before the U.S. was really experiencing any of that. I mean, Japan, for example, was way ahead. Content was becoming much more important in consumer behavior and decision-making. Brands were becoming distribution captive because all of the consolidations, and it was harder for emerging brands to connect with consumers. I love transformation. I wanted a business that could be transformed. Uh, I wanted something with scale and something that could be exciting and take advantage of digital and technology. That, that was quite a long piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, I gave it a lot of thought. And I, I just, I'm such a believer, and I talk a lot to um, younger people entering about this because, you know, your move should be purposeful and they should be able to have you grow and take you to places and also maximize your experiences. Um, and so when I got a call to potentially, you know, do you want to have lunch with Barry Diller and run IAC Retail? I said, it'd be great to have lunch with Barry, but what's IAC Retail? <laughs> and they said, well, it's Home Shopping Network and a portfolio of catalog brands like Frontgate and Ballard Design and a German shopping channel. And I said, I'm not even familiar with this, but it sounds really interesting. So give me two weeks. And let me come up with what I think the future of this could be. And that's what I did. And I had my epiphany moment one night where I was watching Home Shopping Network and watching QVC and going, oh, my God, what would I do? It's just people trying to sell, sell, sell me something. And then I clicked on Food Network, which at the time was more about cooking shows with chefs. And then I clicked back on home shopping network and Wolfgang Puck was on and he was entertaining and he was cooking and he was showing his product and people were calling in and engaged. And this light bulb came off in my head that the future could be editorial program commerce. How do you take things like food network or HDTV or DIY or style, bring them to life, but also be able to sell people the product And so I went and, you know, 
told him my thesis of what it could be. He said, go forth. And when it was announced that I was leaving Nike to do this, uh, I think most people thought I'd had a midlife crisis or was insane. But the most important thing in today's landscape is not just to see what's in front of you, but to see what could be. And we have so many examples of that, but it's more important today than ever. And so I went and joined and it was an incredible experience of relaunching a brand. So we relaunched as HSN, um, you know, there's no place like, of being able to bring entertainment, of being able to bring all different types of distributed content, bring entrepreneurs to life to give them a platform to showcase their product. And that was my true entry to true retail. But my experience in retail has very much been direct to consumer. So I remember in 2006, joining the National Retail Federation, and I was somewhat of an anomaly because most of the businesses, you know, had really grown up in brick and mortar, great businesses, but it was a moment where people were really identifying what is the future of digital? What is the future of content? How do I rethink my organization? How do I start utilizing data? Everything that is still so relevant today. So it was really an opportunity for me to be part of the bigger retail ecosystem, but be a voice for a different type of experience. Now, you mentioned the NRF. Uh, you were the chair of the NRF for, for many years. What's your proudest sort of legacy, you think, or your achievements uh, at the NRF? It's such a great organization, and I had so many fantastic years. Um, and there are a couple of things. The first is, you know, being a voice for the evolution of where, or the revolution, right, of where retail had to go, of not bifurcating the digital and physical worlds of being able to think of the ecosystem around your consumer in a different way. I think the second thing is I became chairman of the National Retail Foundation, and that was really to create opportunities to support the next generation coming into retail. So I started the you know, put in a new board. Um, we kicked off the NRF gala to really bring the industry together to recognize innovators in the industry and also to raise dollars for next generation. And then coming in as vice chairman and ultimately chairman, how did we also interface not just as the National Retail Federation, but how did we also get exposure around the world and bring people together like what the World Retail Congress is doing. And we also did a tremendous amount of work in D.C. to advocate for significant things that we wanted to accomplish as retail. I mean, it's always struck me that given the size of retail, the number of people that retail employ around the world that's retail has never been able to exercise the political muscle um, that many other industries have done. Why do you think that's so? You know, 
I think it's changing. Um, I think part of it is everything was very, you know, bifurcated, right? And now people are coming together. They're realizing the critical nature of everything from social implications or overall ESG implications of labor implications of, you know, everything that needs to happen in logistics and supply chain, right? How do we as an industry lead in these areas? And so I think that's an important element. And then I do think that scale and scope, right? So if you look at what a Walmart, you know, has been doing in certain areas of business, especially in leading on even things in AI and data and things that are going on and, you know, how we need to educate the industry on how critical that's going to be. Um, And we come together more as one, even though we have our own individual businesses that we're focused on, the idea that we're much more impactful together, um, I think is finally starting to take hold. Now, the retail industry has uh, its many ups and downs. You can't be a retailer without uh, enjoying the ups and uh, having to navigate the downs. Uh, You took Home Shopping Network public, I think, a couple of weeks before the Lehman Brothers crisis. (laughs) uh, And we all thought the world was about to collapse. What did that teach you about... uh, about management, about leadership, uh, and about uh, navigating what um, I think many politicians used to say, you know, the things that tripped them up, which were which were just events. <laughs> yeah. You know, David, I mean, that was very much a defining time for me. And I thought that was going to be the crisis of my uh, career before what we all lived through. You know, I had spent two years uh, at IAC, a year preparing the business for relaunch, uh, which fortunately was amazing. And the business really took off once we came out with our new strategy, brand, et cetera. Um, And it was time for us to kind of spin out from IAC. You know, they really were more of a technology and digital company. And even though we were building that, We were a different profile for their portfolio. And I remember spending the summer of 2008, you know, on the road with my CFO, who was also a woman, you know, having all of these investor meetings and people really wanting to know why people are going to want to buy this way. And then we came out in August 2008, to your point, two weeks before the Lehman bankruptcy, First time public company CEO, first time working with a new board, uh, having just relaunched the business. And what I knew was going to be critical is, and I'm seeing it and we're seeing it today. This was a moment not to retreat. This was a moment to really define what we wanted our business to be coming out of this environment. This was a moment being so focused on consumer behavior and what they were going through and what their needs were because we were in every category of business. This was a moment to show leadership and resilience. And this was a moment, yes, there were hard decisions we had to make, but how did I articulate to the board what was critical for us to keep investing in 
so we could leapfrog at some point. And for us, it was definitely in technology, mobility, content, and what we needed to do. But, but you have to be very brave, don't you, to do that? Because the natural instincts, I would imagine, of the board was conserve cash, don't spend. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what it is, and I, I think also the word transformation is a very overused words in business. People think they see a new vision on the wall and they're transformed. It is large-scale radical change. Um, and... What I say is you have to have the vision and you have to have an organization and a culture aligned against that vision. You know, obviously have it be strategic. You need the support of your board. You need investment dollars and you need resilience because it's not going to be a straight path. So you have to create pivot capabilities within the company and empower people because you are going to make certain mistakes and you are going to have to change. But the reason I think that risk-taking and boldness is the essence of transformation is if you look back, not taking a risk at times is often riskier than taking a risk and be able to move forward. Now, at the same time, you need to know the difference between risk and suicide (laughs) Uh, in, in going through that. But we actually grew HSN in 2008 and 2009. Some of our catalog business, because they were at the very high end, had a little bit of a tougher couple of years, but you know we were able to come out of this. We were the first retailer to do video commerce on the iPhone, for example, because we protected our innovation engine to be able to do that. And so I think if you do a study, which there have been, of companies and brands during that time period, the ones who leaned in and said, what are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? How are we going to look at this? Versus the ones who retreated in a way, the ones who leaned in were able to re-accelerate once we came out of this. And I'm seeing the same thing now, given the environment that we all just came out of. Now, you've had experience of both running a private company and running a public company. What is the essential difference when you're sitting there the top of the table with a public company? You know, there, there are all differences with private companies and, you know, public companies. But at the end of the day, if you sit back and go, you know, what ultimately is your dictate, right? You're creating value right? That's the expectation is you are creating value for whoever your investors are and whoever your consumers are, if you think about it. So that doesn't change. Um, There are high expectations. And the thing that is challenging, just being a CEO, particularly in today's environment, you know, you wake up every morning, what's happening globally? It's not just what's happening in your market, what's happening in the economy, what's happening in consumer behavior, what's happening in my industry with my competition, you know, am I delivering on my strategy? Do I have to pivot? I mean, that is the responsibility. Is my team aligned? Those things don't change. Now, obviously, if you're in the public markets, it's a certain level of scrutiny that's there and public. 
But private companies have investors um, and they have to do the same thing. So at the end of the day, it's really that focus on the key areas of leadership, the key areas of strategy, and the key areas of execution of your business for growth and value. Now, when the buck stops with you, is that a lonely place to be? It can be. It can be. And I think um, one of the reasons I love what I'm doing now, being a partner at Concello, which is uh, you know high-level CEO and advisory you know, firm, and I call it, we're the partner to the CEO. So the Declan Kelly, who started uh, the business, was my CEO advisor for eight years. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have a great team, and it doesn't mean you don't have a great board, but you need to identify who's also potentially a partner that can be there to be a voice, to give you different perspective, whether it's perspective across industry perspective across the globe, perspective across experience and that trusted partner. And I think no matter you know what position you're in or industry, I think as a CEO, you need to have that team around you. You need to have the trusted partners because you, you want that feedback and you want that conversation and you want that trust. Now, uh, having transformed the way in which uh, we home shop um, and the use of technology to do that, uh, you then moved to what was Weight Watchers. Uh, and in a sense, you did it all again. You transformed that organization and rebranded that. What was the attraction of Weight Watchers to you? And at that time, did you see the road of transformation ahead? What happened was, David, in the last two years that I was at HSNI, and I was also spending a lot of time talking around the globe for the National Retail Foundation, and one of the things I talked a lot about was that the brands of the future have to use technology plus meaning to help people lead better connected lives. And I started looking at what was happening in consumer behavior particularly in the health and wellness area. I was also seeing the devastating numbers on the health of the world. I started expanding the amount of products in that category we were actually doing on HSNI. And so, you know, I I thought that if I was going to do something else, um, you know, I'd like to deliver certainly financial results, but I'd like to have human impact as well. And that's been very important to me. I want to be passionate. I want to be purposeful and I want to have impact. And I had seen that Oprah had joined Weight Watchers and what they wanted to do was really transform the business, not losing their global leadership in weight management, but to really become more of a holistic wellness business to help people live better, healthier lives across all areas of wellness. And so I was asked if I would go spend uh, an afternoon with Oprah and then have a conversation with the board. And when we met, I had written a manifesto on what I thought the brand could be and the impact it could have. And we were very aligned and aligned with the board. And that's when I decided to make that shift into that world. 
And once again, you know, transformation, especially of a legacy brand, both Home Shopping Network and Weight Watchers were legacy brands, 30 to 50 plus years old when I came in to work with them. And so you have to respect the legacy of the brand, but you have to evolve to meet the needs of today's consumers. You know, what was going to be the difference in a virtual and digital environment? How could you build a broader community? How did you integrate the other elements of wellness like sleep and fitness and mindset and motivation? How did you build out a new portfolio of products that represented a healthy living brand? Um, And that's what we had to do and build the team around the brand and modernize the brand. And, you know, one of the highlights certainly of being there and of my career as I think about it was right before everything had to shut down for COVID, we did an unbelievable um, nine city tour, um, you know, in, in the U S at the time we had 20 to 40,000 people fill arenas every Saturday from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. And it was a whole day, certainly Oprah led it, but other thought leaders coming in to help people re-examine, rethink, and reimagine what they wanted their life to be moving forward. And how could we as a brand help them do that? And when you, when I experienced that and you saw people crying and people laughing and people really rethinking what it was that was important to them, you know, then you know you've created impact because if you have the opportunity to change a person's life or the trajectory of how they're going to live that life, you know, that's a very powerful mission, certainly, but that's very powerful impact. Um, And then, you know, we had to completely pivot when COVID hit because we had 30,000 workshops a week, physical workshops in 13 different countries well covid was uh, uh, a cathartic experience for a lot of us running businesses there was no playbook to go to uh, there was nobody to ask about how it might have been done 10 15 or even you know 50 years ago when covid hit and we and you realized sort of the implications of it for your business how did you regroup your management team to start to navigate a different way of doing things in a very short period of time. And again, you had to move very quickly. So when the finale of the tour was March 7th in Denver, it was a Saturday. I flew back to New York on a Sunday and on Wednesday I had to realize we were going to have to shut everything down in our physical I pulled the team together, the products team, the tech team, the operations team, and said, okay, heads down, how do we transform 30,000 physical workshops a week in 13 countries within about six days to virtual? And the reason we had a complete galvanizing of the organization, I said, we cannot leave our members alone. We need to give them the community We need to give them the support, and it's going to be more important now than ever. And I remember calling Eric Wan at Zoom, and we had a 
big meeting and we worked and we put all our resources against it. And we were able to do all of that in six days with people being able to find a meeting, et cetera. And we knew from a business perspective that we were going to have challenges in the business because it was going to be very difficult to recruit new people to the physical workshops when they were closed. So, But we wanted to retain the people we had, and then we wanted to be able to bring more people into our digital platforms, but give them a virtual opportunity to create their own community. And within our app, we had our own social network called Connect, very private, all positive, very different than what is external people supporting one another. And we launched connect groups for people around not just what their meetings were, but around what their affinities were, around what their lifestyle was, around what their diversity was. So to give people community during one of the most scary and challenging times for so many people. But I think our mission and our purpose allowed us to do things that we never could have done without that because we had a single focus in mind. And what is it, do you think, that you've learned over the COVID period that has still relevance to it as to how companies need to operate in a post-COVID world? I would say that this COVID period has definitely, for everyone, for every person, for every business, there's been a radical reappraisal of what we value, who we value, how we value our time, how we value our impact. And I think it's been this reassessment of how are we creating personal relationships with our consumers How are we being very discreet in what we're trying to do? How are we being very focused on innovation and personalization and creating experiences for people? And how are we building community? And I think all of that is relatable to many businesses today. How are we rethinking our business and how we're reaching the consumer and building. So I use the example, you know, Fanatics was a commerce business, very successful, but fast forward to today, they built a completely diversified sport platform around commerce, collectibles, gaming. So how are we all rethinking how we're building loyalty with you know, our clients, how are they leveraging their 80 million fans? You look at what Target's been doing with their loyalty or, you know, a Walmart with Walmart Plus and how they're using AI and data to be able to service that customer even better across all their platforms. And there are so many examples of that. But I think at the end of the day, that's really been critical to it. Now, over the course of your career and still now you're meeting all sorts of retailers from many different parts and facets of the the rich retail world which retailers have uh, you admired uh, the most and why you know there's not one right 
um, you know, it's also the definition of what a retailer, you know, is. Who's creating great experiences? And in some cases, it's a brand. I can look at, you know, Nike. I can look at Ralph Lauren. I mean, ones that I'm familiar with. Or it's a portfolio of brands. It could be in the luxury space, right? How are you creating experiences? How are you creating dynamism? And that has significantly evolved, you know, from smaller business who are creating experiences for children like camp to, you know, other business. So I'm, I have a lot of admiration for businesses that have created, I would say, built communities, really understood how to build a 360 degree experience for the customer, whether they're physical, whether they're digital, whether they're content driven, you know, those are the kind of things that I look at. Now, when you look uh, to the future, Mindy, it's a very strange, odd world that we're all living in at the moment. The relationship between physical retail, digital retail, where consumers will want to spend their money going forward. Are you a pessimist or an optimist about uh, retail in the future? So I am a I am a self-defined, resilient optimist. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> um, so that's definite. I actually am excited. Uh, I think that the industry is understanding that it's consumer first and just built an ecosystem around them. It's not either or. I think the industry is realizing it, that our competition is not just other retail. It's the last great experience that someone had. And if that experience is highly personalized, if that experience creates an experience for them, that's who you have to be compared to. I think the industry is really embracing technology and really what can fuel their business around data um, and utilization of data. And all of those things are so critical because what we all want to do is service the customer and give them a great product experience um, you know, and we want them to feel they're part of our community and all of those things are are very important and are going to be even more important in the future. Um, so that's how we really have to be thinking. And, and we, we have to use data. I mean, our new chief economist here, Sarah Quinlan, who's been in the retail space for a very long time when she was at MasterCard, you know, we have to use the power of information to inform us in different ways um, and permeate that throughout our organization and become data-led and consumer-led at the same time, which is going to be very important for us as we move forward as well. Well, uh, Mindy, we could carry on forever, but I think time has now defeated us. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Mindy, the latest inductee into the 2023 World Retail Congress Hall of Fame. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. Thank you. It's so great to have this conversation. Thank you.